Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson, and delighted today to be joined by Lawrence Wayne, Revenue Operations and Enablement Consultant, who's going to talk to us about his journey into this industry and give us some insights into what companies are doing right and wrong in this space at the moment in terms of revenue operations and enablement and where the industry is headed. Lawrence, great to see you. Good to be here. That was a great introduction. I love your (laughs) your podcast voices. You you should do voice acting. It's perfect. Well, we we were just talking about that. You're uh, that's that's the family business, right? So, um, (laughs) so when you say it it means something. (laughs) Awesome, man. Awesome. So, really, really good to have you here. I just thought just to to get the podcast started, it might be nice for those who are listening that don't already know you, just to to hear a bit more about your story and how you ended up in the reg tech industry. Yeah. So where do I start? Where do, how does anybody end up in the reg tech industry? Is it just <laughs> you wake up one day and you're like, okay, I want to go into compliance companies? Uh, no, for me, my background is in art and creativity. I, I consider myself a creative first. And the way that started was in basketball. So I grew up in Chicago in the United States uh, and moved to Atlanta to go to college and uh, play basketball there. So that was uh, my first love. And uh, that's kind of what fueled my competitive nature. Uh, and it's carried me a lot through sales as sales is a very similar environment. So um, my first ever real sales job was working at the Apple store at the front of an Apple store, selling laptops and iPads and all those good things. Uh, and within three months, I was moved to the back of the store to a team called the business sales team. And so I would be on the phone and I would sell 10 MacBooks to an up and coming software solution. And um you know, I would have custom software that we put on those devices that we send out to them. So I had to kind of learn that consultative sales process really early. And I was lucky enough to learn how to do it with one of the biggest companies out. So from there, it kind of ignited my love for sales, but I would always look into like what happened after the call. So I would learn about the company, I'd do my research, but we didn't have content that we could send them after the call to kind of reinforce what we were saying. So I always felt like we should be having more of that. And I started creating it on my own, which then sparked a career in marketing. So sales and marketing is where I bounced around. I worked in a lot of tech startups, uh, none of them were tech at the time, but always either the seller that was creating their own content, working very closely with marketing, or the marketing person who was doing product marketing and or account-based marketing, working very closely with the sales team. So at that point, I kind of, around the pandemic times, around 2020, uh, just before then actually, I took a break and uh, one of the companies I was working with sold to private equity, grew really fast. I took a step back and said, where's my skill set really? Like, what do I want to do in the next chapter of what I'm, my career is going to be? And uh, in the meantime, a friend of mine is a headmaster at a high school in Atlanta, Georgia. And he asked me if I would come on as a teacher and run their entrepreneurship program. So that was kind of a hard left, hard curveball to what I was doing, but it was under entrepreneurship. And uh, I thought it would be fun. So I taught 17 year olds how to sell for a year. And during that time is when I really, it kind of fueled my love of the thing behind sales, which is really like, how do you encourage people to have a process to what they do? 
how to learn about, like no one really teaches you sales. If I could have learned sales in college, I would have, but you have to learn it by doing it. So that's when it, I really got into the science of sales to go along with that creative aspect. So coming back into, once I finished that, coming back into my career, I wanted to figure out how can I merge the science and the art? And that's what really put me on the path to revenue enablement and then revenue operations. So uh, in July of 2022, I started working with a company called Verif, which does identity verification and KYC um, for customers or for companies. And uh, I started their enablement team, their revenue enablement team. So we built from a team of two to a team of five, including myself, uh, over the course of 18 months. We grew the team. We supported 80 sellers over across the globe, as well as they were all customer success, solutions, account executives, and um, SDRs, so sales development representatives. So supporting that whole buyer process, that whole buyer journey was a lot of fun for me uh, because it allowed me to still work on the front lines with the sellers and ignite that creative aspect, but then get behind the curtain as well and work in the operations piece as well. So that's what really sparked my joy for enablement and operations together. I need both. I can't just be all in the operation side or just all on the enablement side. Uh, and so from there, now I'm uh, taking on some consulting roles and I've been working individually with companies, taking the playbook that I've built there and kind of helping other companies grow in that way too. Fantastic. Can I, can I just um, picking up on what you're talking about, teaching the entrepreneurship uh, course, what, What's the what's the reaction from a typical 17-year-old to the things that you're talking about there? And what does that content look like? Well, the obvious business as a 17-year-old that you're going to start is to be a YouTuber. So everyone just wanted to uh, start their YouTube career and get on the path to 100,000 subscribers. So for me, I had to take a step back and talk about the business behind that because it is a viable business, but there's a lot more to it. So what really stuck there is it was a year long program. It was for the 17 year olds. It was one of their classes amongst many other classes. Um, but the idea was that for them to kind of figure out what it meant to run a business and to own a business. And so our goal for that year was to have them build a business and to be getting customers by the end of the year. So we had to go through business value propositioning and understanding problems and solutions and how to connect them. But, and they got it great. But, the disconnect happened when they had to actually go out and get in front of people and talk about what they're doing. Whether it was a YouTube channel, whether they had a smoothie stand or whatever they were doing, they had to then go get customers. And that is when I could see them just their eyes glaze over and realize like, oh no, I have to actually talk to people about what I'm doing. Yeah. I don't I don't think I can do this. And when you actually think about the generation coming up, they don't spend a lot of time on the phones. Uh, a lot of their communication and interaction is behind a screen. So they don't get to practice that that skill of pitching what you're doing. And so this was around midway through the year, I realized this is where most of our focus needs to go is just to getting you to help pitching. So that's what a lot of our focus became. And it wasn't that they weren't good at it. It's that they were just afraid to do it and they needed the permission to fail. They needed the permission to get it wrong and it be okay, which is really funny because if you're 17 and someone's pitching you a business, a 17-year-old is pitching you their business, you're probably not going to shut them down. You're not going to be rude no. or, or mean as you would be to a 30-something-year-old seller. Um, but to them, it was just like death. It was like walking the plank. So what I did was really try to create an environment where they felt safe to try things and to practice and to 
learn about what their selling style was. They thought selling was sleazy, understand how it's actually very generous. And through that process, it really helped me understand what I believed about selling and what my philosophy was on it. So I didn't think it was going to relate back to what I ended up doing at all. I thought it was just a quick detour, but it actually kind of informed where I wanted to go next in my career. So it was really fun seeing them get over that fear, creating that environment where they could try yeah. new things. And then I thought, how can I create this environment within companies, within businesses? Because those 17-year-olds are going to grow up and be 25-year-olds at a software company or at a compliance company that they still need to hone those skills. And I realized that a lot of people at these companies still haven't developed those skills over time yeah. because it's such a high stakes environment. Hmm. 100%. Yeah, that seems like quite a tough thing to to just go in and do. Did you have to have any training yourself to, to deliver these classes? No, to tell you the truth, I had been running uh, workshops with adults for about four years before that. Um, but it, they were on business things like digital marketing or Google Analytics, I would run these drop-in workshops for different companies that would have me teach different skills that I was learning at the software companies that I was working at. Um, so I was familiar, I was comfortable getting in front of people and teaching. It's just a different crowd when you're working with young kids because they're going to be brutally oh, honest. Yeah. So yeah. It, it puts you in a different level. It's it's different level of pressure. And yeah. I felt like if I can do that for 17-year-olds, I know I definitely can do it for a business that's making millions of dollars. So you'd already been doing these workshops for adults. What, why had you been doing that? Just as a way to make some extra cash, to be honest with you. It was just a, a thing where I would learn things in my role, in my day-to-day -day job, and I, I enjoyed sharing that information. For some reason, I never picked up on there might be something there. Yeah. I just knew that I was very good at documenting my process and how I went about things. And so sharing that with other people would just prove to be really valuable. So I didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was like a cool thing to do you know, in my off time, you know, run a workshop here, or two hour workshop there. I just thought it was fun. Uh, but really what it came from is me always documenting my process. So that's kind of the science rev up side of where that came from. And that, do you think that's just something that you've always had? Because obviously you mentioned that happening at Apple. Uh, yeah. And I'd imagine probably the average person, the average seller at Apple in that room in the back selling to the corporate customers probably didn't do that. Um, why, why do you think why do you think you've always done that? That's a good question. I haven't actually thought about that before, but when you mentioned Apple, I think that was the first time that I had someone really break down the process of selling to me. And because they're such a big company, they had spent so much energy into what an Apple sales process should look like. And if you've ever been in an Apple store, you know that the people who are selling in that front of that store, they come from different backgrounds. They look different. They have different sell selling styles. They might have some funky hair, but it still feels inherently Apple and in how they go about things. So I was always drawn to that feeling of like, how do we create a, a process that allows for the autonomy of the seller, but still there's something about it that is distinctly your companies. So a lot of sellers, the reason they get into sales is because you want autonomy. You want the freedom to create and to figure things out and to work with your buyer. But from the business side, you do need repeatable results. You need to make sure that your performance is consistent so that you can scale the business. So that's kind of the dichotomy that I wrestle with the back and forth is how do we create something that's standardized enough to give consistent results, but still open enough to allow for that individual's creative freedom. Hmm. Yeah, I, 
I'm just struck by the fact that you were doing these workshops and then you, you took on the teaching role and that you had this sort of bias towards recording and documenting uh, the, the process. Like there's is a, there's almost like a lesson there, it feels to me, you know, because it's well understood, isn't it? That one of the best ways of, uh, of, of securing your own knowledge is, is to document it and learn it such that you can teach it to someone else, right? Uh, that's a great way of solidifying your own knowledge on a, on a subject. And you, you were kind of just doing this all along. You know, do, do you think there was an element of you that knew that that was actually a good thing for your career or, or was it literally uh, a happy coincidence? I think that there was maybe a subconscious element that knew that it would be good. Uh, I think in the times when I've been less creative in my crea- career, I love to make music. That's like a side thing that I, I have a keyboard behind me. Right now I can I see this. <laughs> I love to create. So I think, like I said, at the end of the day, I'm a creator. And if I'm not making music or designs or something like that, at the very least, I can be documenting my process. At the very least, I can take notes on the things that I'm learning and share that. So I don't think consciously I thought this is going to serve me really well later on. I thought this is a way for me to synthesize the things that I'm learning and have some sort of output that comes from it. So that at least yeah. when I look back at my day, I can say, okay, I didn't spend all day talking to people or in meetings, but I actually have a tangible thing that I can look back to and say, this is what I learned today. So For me, it was more just to create, like scratch that itch creatively. Um, And then over time, I started to have these assets that I realized had value. Yeah. And it comes across as passion, you know, as an outsider. We had an original conversation and we end up here having this conversation today because it was very obvious that this is something you're very knowledgeable about and very passionate about. For sure. Um, Okay. So, so before I took us off track, we were, we were talking about your your journey into RegTech and how you ended up uh, Verif doing the great work uh, that you did there. Um, maybe you could expand upon that a little bit for us, specifically as it relates to, to RevOps and enablement. Yeah, for sure. So what you can gather from my background is I love to learn and I love to teach. Uh, I have a very like a uh, passion for figuring things out and taking very complex concepts and kind of synthesizing them into something that's simple. So when I talked to Verif originally, what was interesting about the role is the fact that they had just hired a bunch of sellers. They had a, cons- a, a sales process. They had product market fit, but they needed to scale the business and they need to figure out how to do that. So what I was tasked with coming on, on and doing is building out an onboarding sequence for the new hires and then also building out a learning culture within the business that would allow them to scale. If you have a team of people who have different standards of excellence or different standards of what they want to learn, you can't really scale the business because you don't know what the experience of the buyer is going to be consistently. You talk about that consistent Apple experience. You don't have that. And what I see often is a lot of sales managers or RevOps professionals, they will give the best opportunities to the best sellers consistently because they don't have the confidence that every seller is going to be able to handle that opportunity. And to me, that really broke my heart because I realized like we need to raise the floor of what our standards can be. You're only as good as your worst sales rep. So how do we improve the standard for that person? Um, So over the course of 18 months, we really built out not just the onboarding program, not just the learning cadence, but more so how do we align all of our teams to the buyer journey? Because we think about the sales process as a very linear thing. They go from qualification to discovery to opportunity and proposal. But on the buyer side, 
it can be a very complicated process. And especially when you're dealing with regulatory technology, it's not always coming from a business need. It might be coming from a compliance need of saying, if we don't do this, we can't do business in these different countries. So it's a very pressing pain. And sometimes that sales cycle is very confusing for the buyer because they have to validate things and they have to get consensus with other members of the team. And they circle back to different parts of the process multiple times. So with RevOps and revenue enablement, it's the question you're trying to answer is how do we consistently align all of our resources internally to make that buyer process go much smoother? And that's the, the journey. That's what I learned so much about in my time at Verif is really understanding, okay, what does that buyer journey look like? What are the decisions that they need to make? And what it really came down to is making a purchasing decision is really just a, uh, a series of smaller decisions that you're making. So how do we take those smaller decisions and connect them together and kind of map out what that journey of smaller decisions is that they need to make? In your experience, does having this in place change the type of person that you can or do hire? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you need to understand what the skills makeup is of all of your current sellers. In order to be good at your role, there are certain behaviors that you need to do consistently. And in order to consistently do those behaviors, if you're good at it, then you will develop those skills. So an example of that would be as an account executive, I need to be really good at active listening and discovery. Uh, I also need to be really good at negotiation. Uh, I also need to be good at multi-threading and building consensus with multiple stakeholders on the business side. So those are just three skills that I've outlined. So how can I say that, oh, this seller is really good at creating consensus? Well, a way for me to look at that on the RevOps side would be to say, how many opportunities do we does that seller have where there's three or more contacts that are engaged on that opportunity? If you've got three or more contacts engaged, that's one indicator that you might be good at creating consensus. And you can build three to five other behaviors or indicators of that skill. So once you have that makeup for your sellers, uh, and there's a way that you can go about figuring that out, once you assess your sellers and their skill set, then you can see where the gaps are on your team. And you can say, okay, well, we need to hire someone that's really good at discovery or really good at prospecting because we've got really good closers, but we don't have really good people in qualifying our opportunities. So we're letting a lot of deals through that don't have a high likelihood of closing. Um, and that's kind of slowing down our process. So we need some people who are really good at prospecting while we build up our prospecting skill set and our sellers. So there's a number of different ways you can assess that. Um, the main thing you want to think about is when you assess, make sure it's not just from one place, assess your sellers, but also assess their first line managers and see what their perspective is so that you can see where the gaps. Because as a seller, I might think I'm really good at negotiation, but if you look at my opportunities and you see I'm discounting a lot on all of my opportunities, uh, maybe my manager thinks that I need to really work on that. So you want to see where those gaps are and those discrepancies and where there's agreement to really see what is the skill makeup of my team. I've heard it said, probably by quite a bombastic LinkedIn influence, that you're, you're trying to create a process that that doesn't require A players because you're never going to be able to fill a business full of like the best of the best because the nature of the people who are incredibly good is that they're, there's not very many of them. Um, and so you need to create a scenario where, you know, your average person, if we could use such a term, um, is able to be successful because you put the the steps in place to, to, to make it so. 
yes, you want to structure your process so that it's easy for even your worst seller to guide someone through that process. I agree with that. But it's very hard to get A players if you don't have a culture that's going to support that piece. So I'm really interested in taking the middle and increasing the middle. So like if you your your top 10% of sellers will probably be the top 10% just about wherever they go. And your bottom 10% of sellers are going to be in the bottom just about wherever they go. But that middle 80%, which is the majority of the impact of your revenue work, a lot of that depends on fit and it depends on skill. So do they have the resources to develop their skills and to grow? Because I can tell you about at least 10 different sellers off the top of my head who really struggled until they had the right manager, until they had the right culture in place that they were a part of that challenged them to go outside of what they were comfortable with. And mm-hmm. so that's where I think you can have the biggest impact on a business. Otherwise, you're always just firing the bottom 10% and you're looking for A players. And it's really hard to attract those A players unless you have an attractive culture. That's fantastic. I should have asked this uh, right at the beginning. How do you define RevOps and enablement or how would you break that down? Mm. I would define RevOps and enablement as the set of processes, practices, and performance metrics that align <laughs> that align your selling organization to the buyer journey. So it's really the process of how you align your team to the buyer's decision-making process. So it all starts with your buyer experience, and then how do you align customer success, sales, marketing to that buyer experience to make that as seamless as possible? Okay, so to talk about RevOps and just the impact they can have, you really need to understand the buyer journey and what goes into making a high impact, low regret decision. And what really changed the way that I think about sales was some Gartner research that came out, maybe it was 2019. It was by Brent Adamson, who's the author of The Challenger Sale and The Challenger Customer. And it was called Buyer Enablement. And the thesis behind this is something that uh, the founder of Fluent, another friend of mine, uh, Nate Nasrallah, has done really well at articulating. But the thesis is this, is that sellers don't close deals, buyers do. Because the decisions that happen that actually decide on whether or not someone's going to procure your software or service, your product, it happens when the seller is not in the room. It happens when, if I'm the buyer, I'm talking to three, five, 12 other stakeholders on my team about if this is the right decision for us to make. So as a seller, it's really important for me to be able to equip that buyer with everything that they need to look like a rock star in that meeting and also to feel confident in their ability to make that decision. So a lot of times sellers are thinking about how do I increase the confidence in our business or in me as the seller, when in reality, you want to increase that confidence in the buyer, the confidence they have in themselves to make that right decision. So when you think about the impact that RevOps can have, I think ultimately it's improving the confidence that buyers have in their ability to make the right decision for their business, which is really hard to do. And it's something we really underestimate because we're so focused on our sales process and what's happening on the company side or on the seller side. But really what we want to do is we want to make it very easy for a buyer to make a high value, low regret decision. And so I can take you through some of those decisions if you want uh, in terms of what. Yeah. Yes, so, please. 
the way I think about it is if you think about your sales process, it's very linear. The buying journey is not linear at all. It's like a big bowl of spaghetti. So what are the decisions uh, that a buyer needs to make? It's not, it doesn't necessarily go from one stage to the next and then never return to that stage. Instead of thinking it as like a linear process, I rather think about it as a set of jobs that a buyer needs to complete, a set of tasks that they need to check off to say, okay, I'm confident in this decision that we're making. So those decisions come back down to like four key decisions. Uh, and then there's two pieces to each of those that happen throughout the journey. So the four decisions are this. The first one is problem identification. Do we know what the problem is? Because depending on how you diagnose the problem is going to depend on the kind of solution that you go after. So maybe I have a bad pain in my ankle, uh, right? But if I assess that it's an ankle sprain, I'm going to address it much differently than if I assess that I've broken my ankle. So understanding the problem behind that pain is really important and making sure that we have the right one. Once we have that, the other piece to that is now, what's the potential solutions that we could have? So an example, say the problem is it's raining and I'm wet on the way to work. The potential solutions could be, I could use a cardboard box to cover my head. Uh, I could use an umbrella or I could use a custom new service by Uber called Uber Cozy, where they pick you up in a sprinter van with a cup of hot chocolate and, you know, temperature controlled room, you know, something yeah. like that. So those are all different ways that I could approach that problem. Uh, and I have to decide what is the solution that we think is going to be best for our company based on a number of different factors. So we've got the problem. Now we have solution exploration, exploring what those different solutions look like. Uh, after we've decided on a solution, let's say we take the umbrella. Now we need to decide, well, do we need an umbrella that can fit in our bag? Do we need an umbrella that can uh, that is dark? Do we need one that's see-through? Do we need one that's big enough for two people to fit under? So this is process is called requirement uh, building, building out your requirements for your solution. So we've decided on what our solution is. We need to figure out what are the requirements of that solution. Now, keep in mind, these things aren't all happening linearly. They're not happening one, then the other, then the other. Ideally, they would. But sometimes if you're talking to maybe someone who's more of a technical expert, they might start at requirements building. They might get right into what the requirements of their solution might be before they've even explored the different kinds of solutions that can do that. So you have to be prepared to understand and jump in at whatever task they're focused on at that moment. Um, so you've got problem identification, solution exploration, requirements building. And then the last of the four is supplier selection. So now we've agreed on what kind of solution we want, what the problem is, what the requirements are, who are all the vendors out there that can potentially do these things? So we need to have an exhaustive list of who can potentially do that. Maybe it comes down to the top three. And then we make the, make a decision based on those three. So those are the top four. I'll stop there. There's two other pieces that happen uh, throughout the whole process. But ultimately, you need those four steps, those four tasks to be completed before you can make a decision. That sounds like competitive project management. Exactly. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's a great way to put it. Well, you teased us with the two additional points there, Lawrence. What are they? Yes. So there's two pieces that are going to happen throughout the process at every step, multiple times. Uh, and those things are consensus creation, which we've already kind of touched on today, and then validation. So validation is, can I trust these people? Will they do what they say they're going to do? So an example of a way to validate what you're saying is to deliver a case study of a customer 
that was similar to the buyer that you're talking to, that was in a similar position, maybe you can give them the number of that customer and have them talk and have a conversation on their own. Um, maybe you can show them results. You can show them actually KPIs of things that you've changed. But that validation stage is really important because throughout the process, the buyer is thinking, is this actually the case? Are, can they do what they say they're going to do? And then also, how can we get everybody on board? Because if you think about it as like a journey, we're all in the car and I've got multiple different people in the car. So maybe somebody from finance, maybe somebody from compliance, another person from product management, and they all have different starting points, but I have to pick them up where they are and get them to the same destination. So for me, I need to meet them where they are and speak to the things that they care about in order for them to actually get on the van with me and come to the destination we're going on. So it's important that you're able to build consensus and get everybody aligned on these decisions because what your head of compliance thinks is the problem might not be what your head of product thinks is the problem. And so we need to actually align their points of view and get us all moving in the same direction. So validation and consensus creation are the two things that happen across the process. When you're, when you're outlining uh, uh, this process to uh, the, the teams that you're training, what what level of detail are you going into at each stage? <laughs> yeah, so the level of detail, I, I like to start where the company is having the most issues or with the decisions or where do you have the most pipeline stuck in your process uh, and how can you work with that? Um, but the detail, I mean, we can go as deep as you need to, honestly, especially when it comes to, let's say, problem identification. I like to look at gong videos. I look at lots of recordings of what's actually happening on calls and what conversations people are having. If you think about requirement uh, building, I want to search for products and I want to actually look in gong or whatever conversation intelligence tool you're using and say, how are people talking about this product? How can we be doing that better? So I look at gong for sure. I definitely look in your Salesforce. I look in your actual data and dig into things like what percentage are we discounting our products on average? Uh, that could be something. So I want to look into the data. I want to look into the qualitative piece and the gong calls. And then I want to look at what are what's happening during your manager one-to-ones. How are you actually being coached to these behaviors? Uh, and so it takes a lot of research on the product and understanding your specific need. But it's really important that you look at the behavior from a qualitative and a quantitative perspective. Yeah. And and so, and I guess what I was thinking when I asked the question is, um, so you're 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 implementing this process at a company mm-hmm. that you're you're uh, helping, yeah. um, but presumably it's not you on a day to day basis that's having those conversations with the sellers. You're, yeah. you're, you're you're teaching the 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 managers how to have those conversations. Is that is that correct, or or you're doing it? Yeah, sometimes I will come in and do it. I think it's important to give an example of what good looks like, and not to say that managers aren't good at doing their jobs, but. If I can step in and show you, it's a lot faster than trying to tell you and teach you. So yeah. sometimes I'll show you and then we can take a step back and say, OK, let me show you what I was doing in this particular call or how I was thinking about this. And then I can coach you as the leader to then carry out that process. I never want you to be beholden to me to be able to execute on what you need. I just want to show you how it should go and then set you up for success long term, because over the long term, you have a much better perspective on the business and you have way more context that I can pick up in a short period of time. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting one. Do you ever have, is there ever resistance from sales leadership? Because there's a presumably an element to your role where 
your responsibilities are crossing over a little bit, aren't they? Sure. Um, uh, you know, is there com- is there ever any conflict? And if there is, how do you go about handling that? Yeah, I think the best sales managers and sales leaders are very open to learn. They have a growth mindset and they want to f- figure out how they can improve their skills. Where I get pushback is normally when they might feel threatened in terms of their job security or they feel like they're being told that they don't know what they're doing. And that's when I get the pushback. So it's really important for me to let leaders know that this is not a result of them being terrible at their job or not achieving their goal or not hitting their numbers. It's just another way of looking at things. And if you want to take it, you can take it. If you don't, you don't. But that that psychological safety is the word that comes to mind is like, is this a safe space for you to actually try new things and figure out how you can improve at your role? So I'm not here to step on your toes. I'm here to make you better. And I think if it was a situation where I was coming in for a long period of time or for an in, you know, a time that hadn't been defined, then there would be even more pushback. So I like to think of it as like, look, let me just add some training wheels here. I think this is going to supercharge the things that you're already trying to get done. And for me, I have to align with them and figure out what they are trying to get done, what their goals are, what their numbers are, and then say, this is going to help you get there faster. So let me show you how to get there faster. And then let me work with you to actually build that muscle because it it does take a little bit of time, but over time, you're going to be way better than I could ever be at that. So it's not coming from a position of, I know exactly what you're doing, what to do, step aside, watch the master. It's more like, look, you know way more about this than I do. I just have this one little tweak that will help you get there a lot faster and be a lot better at what you're doing. So let me work with you on that specific skill and then let your expertise take over. Do you think um, there is a time in a company's evolution where this sort of thing makes most sense? Yes. Um, I mean, it can happen at any different stage in the company's growth. I think it's when you're looking to pour a little gasoline on the fire. So if you have product market fit, uh, sometimes that happens at 1 million. Sometimes it might be another stage at 10 million, uh, might be another stage at 100 million. But when you're looking to scale, you need to really make sure that you have not just the right process in place, but the right practice in place to reinforce it. Because a lot of times we only look at process and performance, but we don't look at that bridge that actually gets you there, which is going to be rehearsing it over and over. I can have a great process and I can want to change my performance, but if I'm not consistently reinforcing that behavior, it's not going to stick. I'm I'm naturally going to revert to the mean of what I'm used to. So it's really that reinforcement culture and your process is not what allows your business to scale. It's your culture. So that's what I'm most interested in is that creative side of how do we create that culture? But the RevOps piece is the science of it. It's the, what does that process look like and how do we make sure that we have the right process and we're constantly refining that process? I'm sure between companies, there are commonalities since you've outlined the the four key things um, for us. Um, But how how individualized are these processes to a company? Mm -hmm. Uh, And to add uh, a a question onto that, um, you know, how much data does there need to be on what a successful sales process at a company looks like for you to be able to do what you do? Um, and the reason why I ask that question is, you know, presumably at a certain stage, uh, uh, a company, you know, a company could be turning over a million and have one customer, right? So that yeah. that might not, we can't, maybe we can't elicit 
patterns from one customer. <laughs> yeah, we want to have at least 10 to 15 sellers, I think is good to have because that's enough right. data over time. Uh, I like sales cycles of three to nine months. Uh, it's usually like, just to give you some loose numbers, it's going to differ depending on the company. Um, I think the biggest variable, I'd say about 80% of it is very uniform across the business. 20% of it, 20 to 30% is going to be variable in terms of where you're, what's your starting point? You know, are we starting at point C or are we starting at point F? You know, like that's kind of going to be the most important thing for me. Uh, but the biggest variable also is the people. So what I find is that, let me see if I can tell the story to drive this home. Okay. So one of my favorite burgers in the world, and I'm going to take a left turn, but I'm going to bring it back. Just stick with me. One of my favorite, I'm a big cheeseburger guy. I was grown, I was born and raised in Chicago. We have great food, right? So one of my favorite cheeseburgers is actually a place in Atlanta. It's called Home and Finch. And they only, the way they started, it's not a burger restaurant at all. It's a like really nice restaurant. But on Wednesday nights at 10 p.m., they sell 24 of these special cheeseburgers that have been marinated over the course of the week. And they sell them once a week at 10 p.m. on Wednesdays. And there's 24 of them. And they are amazing. And they are just like excellent. And they're done by a <laughs> chef who's not a burger maker. He's a chef. And he just had this pet project of making these burgers. Um, very unscalable process to do. Yeah. And uh, they've tried to take just the cheeseburgers and open its own restaurant. But they had to open it in the sports arena. So the restaurant is only open when the sports team plays once or twice a week. Uh, so it's not very scalable at all, but the burger is amazing. Then on the other hand, you have McDonald's, which is just like everybody knows McDonald's. It's going to taste the same in Helsinki as it does in Hong Kong, as it does in Berlin, as it does in California. Um, give or take, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's a very scalable process. So when you think about sellers and you think about sales organizations or compliance organizations, reg tech, the business really needs to scale, but the seller feels like they're a gourmet chef. And the biggest contention, the biggest tension that I have to release coming in is to relax the sellers who feel like they're gourmet chefs. And they often feel like, why are you trying to make me a cook in the back of McDonald's when I'm a gourmet chef? This is my process. This is how I do it. This is what my buyers love. And I don't want to box this in. I didn't get into this role to lose my autonomy and have to fit what I do into this very regimented process. But then on the business side, they want to scale like McDonald's. They want to be able to grow and they want to be able to create a consistent experience across where you go. So there's automatic tension between the sellers and the revenue leaders because the revenue leaders are focused about the business and how do we scale it. The sellers are focused on the buyer and how do we create the best experience. So that's kind of the tension that I have to relieve. And it's finding that balance of how do we give you enough process to allow you to scale, but not so much that you feel like you've got a straight jacket on. So that's that's the problem that I can see consistently within companies that are trying to scale. It's the sellers feeling like, why are you putting a straight jacket on me? I have my process. It's not scalable, but just let me do what I do. How, how much are you able to influence them having a different point of view, how much of that job needs to be done by the leadership of that company? Long-term, it depends on the leadership of the company. What I can do is give you some tools, some frameworks, some, I don't like the word hacks, but some ways of framing it 
so that you're able to communicate successfully. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say your Salesforce hygiene is really, really bad. And as a leader, you can't look into the data and get really good insights on how your business is doing because sellers are not filling out the right fields in Salesforce. You're not getting enough information on what's happening in those calls. So you decide that your RevOps team is going to be responsible for closed one, closed winning all opportunities. So every opportunity that closes, a seller is no longer able to close one that deal. They have to submit it to RevOps and RevOps will change the status to close one within 24 to 36 hours, permitted that they filled out all the fields correctly. If they haven't filled out all the fields correctly, then they pass it back to the seller. They say, you haven't done X, Y, and Z. In order to get close one and to make your commission, you're going to have to fill this out. As a seller, I would probably throw a fit. I think that would feel like, you know, I'm being completely ripped of all my autonomy. Um, this is ridiculous. I'm not being paid on time now because now I have to fill out all these silly Salesforce fields. I've done my job. I've closed the deal. Why can't we do this? But from a business perspective, I need this done. So how you message that to the sellers is really important. And what I found is sellers are really pretty forgiving if you approach it in a way that shows you've taken their perspective into account. So if I say, look, guys, I know this is not ideal. I love the work that we're doing, but it's just not scalable. It's not helpful for us. As a sales leader, I'm getting my butt kicked when I go report to the board because I can't actually forecast the health of the business long term. And it makes me look bad as a leader. I know the work that we're doing. I see the work that you're putting in every day. But part of why you're paid a base salary is because we need to make sure that this is helpful to the business and the customer. So what we're going to do is we're going to implement that only RevOps can close one deals. And if it's done correctly, you should have it what you need in 24 to 36 hours. Um, I know it's not ideal, but if we can get a 90% success rate on the first try, I will completely take this off in the next three months. So let's focus in for this quarter to implement some operational excellence help me not get my butt kicked when I'm talking to the board. And then you guys can get back to doing what we're doing and it helps us all. How does that sound? M most sellers are, they're still gonna gripe a little bit, but they're gonna understand where you're coming from because you've shown that you've actually taken their perspective. Into yeah. So that is kind of the change that I seek to make is like, how do we frame what's happening to relieve that tension between the business and the buyer? Yeah. Um, I think you you may have covered it off there, but I, I had the question: what what is the most common uh, challenge that you you come across in companies when you're implementing some of your tools and processes? Um, is it that is it that uh, that tension that you talked about? Yeah, I think it's the tension, and also I think it's retention actually. Uh, so a lot of times you can come in and you can implement some systems, you can have some trainings, maybe you have a sales kickoff. Everyone's high energy, lots of rah-rah, and everyone's feeling great about themselves. You come back three to six months later, and everyone's kind of regressed back to what they naturally yeah. do, and those yeah. results haven't kind of kept up. So I think the retention part of it is actually making sure that it sticks and that we're reinforcing it over time is probably the biggest one, because everyone has the desire to change, uh, especially on the business side, but do you have the capability to maintain that change is really the question that a lot of companies have to ask themselves. So I think retention, it's not just implementing it, but also giving you the tools to maintain it over time is really the hardest part. And how much of that is RevOps responsibility and how much of that is leadership's responsibility? Oh, that is a 
That is a spicy question. My <laughs> um, I think that, I mean, I always default to leadership, but there are leadership, there are leaders within RevOps. So I think it's RevOps job to make sure that it's something that can be sustained, that is able to be maintained over time and to make it as simple and as seamless and as frictionless as possible. It's leadership's job to then reinforce and consistently practice these things. So leadership, it, it does not happen without leadership's buy-in. I don't care how great your RevOps team is. If you don't have yeah. first line, second line managers, VPs that are bought in and that are reinforcing this with the rest of their team, it's not going to work. So I think RevOps is the first step, but then you need that reliability and that comes from the leadership. Technology plays a massive part in what you do, I imagine. Yeah. So uh, and so on on the tech stack. If you're working with an early stage company, mm-hmm. you're advising a fairly early stage company. Is there like a go to tech stack that that you would you would just sort of reel off as like these are the things you want to be thinking about straight out of the gate? Yeah, uh, I would never say there's a go to tech stack. I'm not going to endorse any software companies that hard in terms of what you need. But there are a few important things that you need to have. So you definitely want to have, obviously, a strong CRM. Salesforce, it's not the best. It is the stickiest. Uh, I think they are very much uh, invested in keeping it complex because they have so many vendors that make money off of having Salesforce solutions. So most of your companies are going to have Salesforce. I think it's good to have Salesforce. Uh, So you need a good CRM. You also need a good conversation intelligence tool. I think that's really important to be able to really dive deep into the game film. If you talk about basketball or sports, being able to look at the game film and review game film is what all the greats do. So to be able to look at what's happening in those calls in real time, hearing what customers are saying, seeing what their facial expressions are, I think good conversation intelligence is important. Along with that, you need good forecasting. So how do we forecast the business? How do we communicate about where we see it going? You definitely need sales engagement. How are you reaching out, prospecting, getting in front of the right people? Um, That's a big one. And I think sometimes we look at engagement just for volume, but you need to have that balance of quality and quantity. Uh, Tools like SalesLoft are really good at helping you find a template, building a cadence, and shooting that off to thousands of potential leads. But you want to make sure that you're able to personalize that as much as possible. And I think AI is really helping with the ability to do that faster. Um, those are probably the big ones just off the top of my head. Um, you do want to have good data. I think Clary is good for forecasting and for like data and that kind of thing. Um, and then if you look at on the enablement side, you would like a content management system so that you can harness all of the content that your marketing team is creating and allow your sellers to tap into that to use during their calls. And then also uh, a learning management system a place where they can go to learn internal information or ways to sell or ways to do better. The last piece, and this is an optional one, but I think it's really important, is a way to communicate with your buyer. So a lot of companies, you'll see something called like a digital sales room or a virtual deal room or what have you, where you can basically store all of your content that sellers or that buyers can then tap into and see, okay, what's the content that you've shared with me in one place? It's kind of like a Google Drive for your buyer. Um, I don't know how helpful that is and sellers use it differently. One team that I will shout out specifically because I love the work that they're doing is a company called Fluent. 
Uh, it's F-L-U-I-N-T. And the way they think about it is rather than have a digital sales room, they actually build a narrative business case that's almost like a notion page for your buyer that you can collaborate with your buyer on to build a business case that they can then go share internally and you can edit together. So mm. I like that idea because the things that are the simplest usually get shared the most. And as a buyer, if you send me a bunch of PDFs and slide decks, I'm just going to copy paste all the best parts and put it on my own business collateral or put it into a Google Doc. So by starting there, it allows you to kind of collaborate on the narrative with the buyer, which I think is really key. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, do you, the, the obvious effect that I suppose leadership would pay attention to in terms of assessing the success of RevOps and enablement mm -hmm. is uh, a higher number of sales. Yeah. Presumably though, there are other knock-on effects. Can we talk a little bit about those and you know, how much success have you had in measuring some of them? Yeah. So obviously revenue is going to be the, name, the main thing is how many of our reps are hitting quota, how much revenue are we generating as a business. Um, I tend to like to look at win rate more. I think that's a better indicator because a lot of teams will focus on pipeline and needing more top of funnel pipeline to hit their numbers. When in reality, if you have a win rate, which the average win rate um, B2B for contracts over $100,000 is 17%. I don't think there's any industry where 17% is considered good. So if I've got a 17% win rate and I'm focused on getting more pipeline, I think your focus is in the wrong place. So, and I found, this is not a hard rule, but I find that Usually your win rate, this is really weird, is is almost an inverse of the pipeline multiple that you're forcing your sellers to have. So without getting too nerdy, imagine I tell my sellers that you need to have five times your quota in pipeline at all times. So if you have a 5x pipeline mandate, then usually the win rate hovers around 20%. Now, the best sellers on my team, their win rates are usually around 50 to 60%. But as a result, I normally see their pipeline usually be about two to two and a half, two and a half X of what their quota is. So they have way less pipeline. And if I'm only looking at it from a pipeline perspective, I'm saying we got to add more pipeline, but they're closing way more of that pipeline. Yeah. So I'd much rather have you have a higher win rate and a lower pipeline number or lower number of opportunities than to have a bunch of opportunities and a low win rate. So I like to look at win rate um, on that side. Uh, sometimes I'll look at average revenue per seller uh, or average revenue per rep is another big one. Um, I mean, how nerdy do you want to get? We can look at average well, time to reply, you know, for, yeah. to, uh, you can get really granular with it. Measure, it's, it's a measurement of the sellers in some way, but, but in terms of the success of RevOps mm -hmm. and enablement, yes. are there metrics that one would use to, to, to figure out if you've been successful. Yeah. Uh, so really what we're looking for is like metrics that are going to show that your revenue operations team is being successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think still win rate. But another thing that I've started to look at is median win rate. Because if we're trying to raise the middle of what is what is average, then sometimes that number can get skewed by a couple of high performers. Yeah. So 
rather than look at your average win rate, look at the median win rate to see what that middle number actually is. It'll be really telling. Uh, another one that I like to look at is sales progression. So if you do have your sales stages, how fast are people moving through each stage in the sales cycle? Normally, what you'll find is there's one stage where people are staying really long. And then that's an opportunity for you to clean up your processes in that stage and actually clean that up. So looking at sales progression through the stages is another big one. Um, yeah, those are two really important ones. And then also sales cycle length. So I like to look at sales cycle length as not just the time it takes to close a deal, but also the time and the amount of engagements it takes to close a deal. So let's say I have a sales cycle length of three months. Um, maybe I don't shorten the sales cycle, but I shorten the amount of meetings during that time. So instead of nine meetings to close that deal, I'm able to close that same deal in five meetings. So if you average every meeting to be about an hour and maybe there's about, let's say, 30 minutes of prep for each one of those meetings, I've cut about six hours worth, almost a day's worth of time for my sellers. I've given them back to work on other deals. So sales cycle length isn't always about just the amount of time, but also the amount of engagements it takes to close something. And if I can have the same amount of time, but a fewer number of engagements, I still give my sellers a lot of time back. Very good. So as a man with his finger on the pulse, where do you think this industry is headed? Okay, so I'll start with the enablement side. I see enablement is usually one of the first things that companies turn to when they're looking to scale their sales team because it's really important in terms of onboarding. But also when companies hit a bit of a rough, rough patch in terms of the market and things like that, it's also one of the first places to get cut. And unfortunately so, I don't think that should be the case, but we have to deal with what's actually happening. So what I think will happen more and more is that companies will turn to like fractional enablement and fractional RevOps, not so much RevOps, but specifically enablement to where they can come take your enablement team from zero to one and actually build out the processes and programs that you need and then actually train your team on how to maintain those systems. So rather than have an enablement team of five or even 10, you have an enablement team of one to two, but they're able to do much more because they've got the systems and processes already in place. So instead of having an agency where you're tied to that agency because they're so good at what they do that you couldn't function without them, having agencies that come in, set you up with the tools that you need, and then train your team on how to maintain those systems long-term. In, in this situation, where does enablement end and sales training begin? Mm. Or vice versa, perhaps. So enablement to me is more about a culture. Sales training is a finite act, but the purpose of training is actually to change your behavior to achieve a better performance. So that's an ongoing thing. So Setting up the culture and the structure of those interactions is what you really need, is you need a cadence. You need a rhythm for how people communicate, when they communicate, and what are the rules of engagement? What are people responsible and accountable for? So that's something that you can set up and that has a finite start and end. Um, the sales development piece is an ongoing thing that happens. You're always going to have one-to-ones with your sellers. You're always going to have all hands with your whole team. You're always going to have these different cadences of communication that you need to improve upon over time. So training, when people use the word training a lot, it's like a finite, this is the beginning, middle, and end uh, of training. But I think training is more of about development of a culture of learning and a culture of constant improvement that can be reinforced by sales leaders. 
It can be reinforced by sales reps and peers. Uh, a lot of times I like to leverage the top players or the top sellers on the team to really build out that culture because you want it to ultimately come up from the sellers. You want sellers coming to you and saying, hey, I'm seeing this happen in a lot of my calls or I'm seeing a lot of customers talking about this new thing that's going on in the market. We need to be agile to this. So because your sellers are the front lines of talking to your customers, your go-to-market reps, it's really important to be able to have a, a feedback loop of information that's coming from them. So that's what you want to set up ongoing. Um, training will happen as and when, but I don't look to training yeah. as like my first step of what we should do to change something. It's usually a number of different things, training being lower down on that list of something that we can do to change things. So um, the, the the fractional approach, uh, yeah. allowing internal teams to do more with less, I got the sense that you had another uh, thing that you were going to add. No, I just think that that's, uh, I think that's the future of where a lot of teams are going um, to be able to have a system that they can repeat to develop that culture. Uh, I think agencies in general, the reason a lot of companies have been reluctant to work with agencies is either it's not a good fit and they end up losing money or on a sunk cost, or it's a great fit. And now we can't live without this agency. And this agency is too integral to our growth as a company that either we have to bring that whole agency in house, or we have to figure out a way to get the IP from that agency uh, to be able to grow our business. And most agencies, when they figure out that you're trying to take that IP away, they don't want to do that because they want you to constantly be yeah. working with them. So it's really important that I think from an agency perspective, we have the shift in frame of saying, hey, let us get the ball rolling. And then we can just be there to help you develop and build it out. Because ultimately, the, the drawback of agencies, is they don't have the context. They don't understand as much about your business as you do. And sometimes it can take quite a bit of time, especially in reg tech, to be able to learn all the intricacies of how you do business. So rather than try to come in and figure those things out and maybe waste two to three months learning about your business, why don't we come set you up with the systems and then train you who already has the context on how to develop that business out? Very good. Uh, and, and that was more around enablement, I think, when you positioned it. Was there something yes. on RevOps? Yeah, so on the RevOps side, in the U.S., RevOps is one of the largest growing industries in the in the country. So I think RevOps is going to continue to grow because it's the closest to finance and where the money is. And as budgets get tighter, you need to be much more focused on your inputs and outputs. And you need to have much cleaner data and much more granular data on what's happening. So conversely, I think more and more companies are going to bring RevOps on board and actually build out their RevOps team. I think that's really important. Um, the thing there is that they're able to operate in a way that your RevOps is like your right-hand person to the CRO, to the chief enablement or the chief uh, commercial officer or the chief revenue officer, whoever's head of the sales organization, they need to have somebody right there who has all their data, which is usually the VP of RevOps. So I think RevOps conversely is going to become more important to have internally so that you have someone to set that up um, and, and keep that running. So I think RevOps agencies will continue to grow. Some of my friends run some of the biggest RevOps agencies. I just think that that industry will continue to develop um, more so in-house. Interesting. Yeah. Um, anyone that you want to give a shout out to that's uh, been integral to to the journey and the learnings up to, up to now? 
Yeah, I want to give a couple shout outs. One, I've, I've already shouted out Nate Nasrallah a couple times on this podcast. I think he's great. And I think the work he's doing is really needed. So definitely check out Fluent. Uh, another friend on the RevOps side is the founder of Carabiner that does great work in the RevOps space. His name is Cliff Simon. And Cliff's been really instrumental in like encouraging me as an enablement person in, in the RevOps space. And the work that his company's doing is amazing. So there's two people that you could check out. Uh, one on the software side would be Fluent, F-L-U-I-N-T. And then the other would be the Carabiner Group. And that is my man, Cliff Simon. Superb. I'd like to shout out Charlie Roberts for introducing us. Yes, Charlie. Oh my God, Charlie is amazing. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, <laughs> Charlie, I worked with him at Verif and he's been instrumental. Man. He's been really just a, a great support and encourager in the, in the work that we're doing behind the scenes. So yeah, shout out to Charlie. Superb. Nice. Um, I always finish these things with one question, uh, if you don't mind. Yes. Um, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to uh, your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, this is a good one. Okay. So if I could talk to my 18-year-old self, I would say it's not about what you do, but how you do it. Uh, especially, I don't know how it is here in the UK as much. I'm based in London, but growing up in the States, there's so much pressure as an 18-year-old to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And it is really important what boat you're in, because depending on the boat you choose might be how far you go in life. But that early on, it's more about what version you're learning about who you are and what you bring to the table. And so rather than stressing about what boat am I going to get in, just get in a boat and figure out who you are through what you're doing. You could literally work as a plumber, you know, but if you approach it with a level of excellence and developing your skills and being the person that you want to be in that role, then how you do anything is how you're going to do everything. So rather than spend so much time stressing about what career I was going to dive into, yeah. I would just pick a boat and start rowing and start pedaling really hard uh, to learn about how to develop that skill of hard work. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is like, don't stress so much about what you do. Pick something that you remotely could potentially like, and then just forget about that decision and just do it. Give yourself 18 months and just work really hard and see where you come out on the other side. I think that's a great bit of advice. Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Cheers.